TV around the world and thank you for your company on truth2u.org. That's truth2letteru.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling of Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Hey, Jono. Great to be back with you. Wonderful to have you back on the program, my friend. It's going to be an exciting program today because we are, of course, continuing to investigate the 365 Messianic prophecies, the alleged 365 Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. And lo and behold, if we're not up to Isaiah 53. Finally. (laughs) Finally. This is the go-to chapter of all missionaries. This is their first port of call, right? This is the first stop. If you really, if you're, if you're, uh, uh, you know, low on time and you've got to do this in a flash, Isaiah 53 is where they're going to go. We're going to get into that. Now, before we do, I just want to say good day to Sophie, who's been commenting uh, and co- left some wonderful comments on the last program. And boy, she leaves some, she is the, the comment queen, I just have to say, uh, Michael. She just leaves the best uh, comments, really detailed comments, and I really appreciate so I just wanted to say good day to her. She has a uh, Facebook page, and it is entitled "Judaism is not Christianity minus Jesus." Judaism is not Christianity minus Jesus. I will put a link on this post because uh, there's just absolute gold there. I do suggest that everyone go to that page and like it, and uh, click on get notifications uh, so that you can see what she puts there. But she does leave wonderful, wonderful comments and thank you once again Sophie she's very very diligent and very thoughtful and her comments are always really really well researched and well thought out and well documented and uh, I I think that in the the world of cyberspace uh, Sophie's been around for a very long time and you know has really been such a source of light and teaching and truth that you know, uh, she's really made our world that we inhabit a much, much brighter and uh, clearer world. So mm-hmm. I also I want to take my yamulka off <laughs> to Sophie and thank her as well. There you go. So thank you very much, Sophie, for being the comment queen. I really look forward to uh, reading more of your comments, and I appreciate the time that you take to write them. Now, I want to read you a story. Are you ready for a story? I love it. All right, here we go. This is actually from the New Testament. This is Acts chapter eight. Uh, from verse 26 and on. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. G'day, Philip. The, well, the angel didn't say g'day, Philip. I'm just saying g'day, Philip. But the angel said, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert. And so he arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, uh, who had charge over all her treasury. And he'd come up to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah, the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and he heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what it is that you're reading? And he said, well, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture, which he was reading, it was this, Michael, he, he was reading this part. It said, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silence, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life was taken from the earth? And so the, the eunuch uh, answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this of? Is it of himself or some other man? Then Philip, guess what Philip said? 
We actually don't get to find out. Uh, it doesn't tell us. I mean, we would have loved it if only we knew what Philip actually said. But what, what we have here is that uh, Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture and preached Jesus to him. And it turns out that you know, as they were going, they found some water and he baptized him and so on and so forth. But we don't get to find out what Philip actually said. But whatever he said, it was enough to convince the eunuch. And lo and behold, uh, in the puddle they went. <laughs> the big puddle. Would have loved to have known the details of that conversation. However, Isaiah 53, as I mentioned, it is the go-to verse. There are uh, sightings of this, uh, of this chapter throughout the New Testament. Uh, maybe about nine of them, I think, I counted. Now, in the, uh, the list of 365, of course, we, we're now using uh, Carmen's New Revised Standard Version, Carmen of the RefinersFire.org, and thank you, Carmen, for that. It did uh, refine it, I suppose, somewhat. But even so, there's about 40-odd references that Carmen puts there. Uh, It's rather exhaustive, and I don't know that we're going to be touching on every single one of those. What I would like to do, perhaps, is go through Isaiah, uh, the suffering servant passage, and see what it is that, uh, what what the Christian claim is, or those who who believe in the New Testament, what that claim is, uh, how they read it, how they understand it, and what the references are the, where the New Testament quotes from this chapter. What do you think? Sounds like a, like a plan. All right. Well, this is what we can do. Now, before we do, shall I read a, a short overview? This is from my New King James Study Bible. It has a little, you know, in-depth study here, a little square with a little bit of information. Uh, the Suffering Servant. Shall I, shall I read what they've got here? Maybe it'll be enlightening. It, it, might, <laughs> be, it might be indeed. Uh, in fact, I think it is. And it does begin at Isaiah chapter 52, 13. It doesn't begin at 53, 1. We'll get to that. Despised and rejected, 53, 3. Wounded and, and bruised, 53, 5. This unattractive servant would know heartache and sorrow. And what was the reason for his suffering? His life could not be the cause, for he was blameless, speaking only truth. Yet the servant would be led to prison and then to death for our sins. It says 53, 6 to 11. Three other passages in Isaiah focus on the servant and are called the servant songs. The first song celebrates the servant as the one who will establish justice for all. The second highlights the deliverance that the servant will provide. He will restore Israel and become a, quote, light to the nations or light to the Gentiles. The third emphasizes the God-given wisdom of the servant. All this culminates in the description of the suffering and death of the servant in chapter 53, the final servant song. Listen to this, Michael. It says, although Isaiah refers to the nation Israel as my servant, and it references uh, Isaiah 43, 9 as an example. Of course, there's numerous examples of that. Uh, It goes on to say, the preeminent servant of the Lord was clearly a unique person, a suffering Messiah yet to come. Now, there they've cited Isaiah 53, verse 6. We'll get to that. It goes on to say, Philip used one of the servant songs as a starting point for evangelism. We just read that. The Ethiopian eunuch asked him to explain the passage that, you know, who was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And Philip introduced him to Jesus, the one who was led to death for the sins of humanity. That's what it's got. And I, I, find, I found it interesting that it began talking about the servant, didn't identify the servant until the last little paragraph there. But that paragraph begins with, although Isaiah refers to the nation Israel as my servant. Michael. Well, that's uh, an important clue. You know, if we're trying to understand um, who this servant is, that's the question in the book of Acts. 
and it should be the question on the mind of any reader of Isaiah. Um, it speaks about this servant of the Lord. Um, who was it speaking of? And, uh, you know, I think that we, we know from a Christological point of view, we know exactly how Christianity sees this passage um, and has traditionally seen this passage. And I think that our task will be to um, critically examine that claim, meaning that the, the, the study notes in your, in your study Bible points out that the text of Isaiah identifies the servant as Israel, and for some reason, uh, a, a Christian spin or interpretation um, goes beyond that and says, well, really, the ultimate servant is not Israel, but it is the Messiah. And so, uh, this is the assertion that's being made, and I think that you know it would it would be worth our time to really think about this claim and to analyze it and to see, um, you know, if there are any weaknesses um, to mm-hmm. you know evaluate it. Um, so I think that that I think is uh, our, our marching orders for tonight. That's what it is, and as I said, it does begin in Isaiah chapter fifty-two, verse thirteen. Most people think that. This passage begins at 53, but that's not the case, is it? Well, because the chapter, these breaks in the chapters uh, don't appear in the original text of Isaiah. Um, you know, if you get the original <laughs> copy of the scroll of Isaiah, it's one long uh, text. Mm-hmm. And the, these particular, this pageantation of where chapter 53 begins and chapter 54, this was not originally part of the scroll. This was... Um, uh, an editorial, um, I guess, um, improvement or editorial uh, enhancement that mm-hmm. was done in, in medieval monks. Medieval Christian monks did this uh, pageantation. The truth is that, that you're right, it really wasn't broken at the proper place, meaning that the place to have begun chapter 53 would have been three verses earlier towards the end of chapter 52. That's really where this passage begins. Um, so With it's the suffering of, seven. Yeah, it's sort mm-hmm. of artificially broken uh, where it is, meaning that it, it, I think that thematically uh, it, they would have been better off placing chapter 53 three verses earlier, um, and we'll see why. Well, I mean, it's pretty clear why. Uh, well, this is, this is the way it begins. So, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servants shall deal prudently he shall uh, be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Now, if I can stop there, uh, obviously what, what we have here is, um, particularly in verse 14, I suppose we have uh, references to Jesus being beaten, being whipped, uh, the crown of thorns and so on and so forth. Uh, he being marred more than uh, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Uh, also in thirteen, he shall be exalted and and very high. I suppose we have uh, passages like the Carmen Christi that uh, that borrows from an earlier passage in Isaiah. Uh, this, I, I guess, this is how uh, traditional Christianity would view it. Yeah, and I think that you know, as you continue on into chapter fifty-three, they see. The, this theme being developed further about the rejection of the servant, the suffering of the servant, uh, you know, the, 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 the purpose of the suffering being uh, as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice 
um, what I found, I, I, I sort of went through uh, this the list that Carmen has, which is, mm-hmm. I think it's about 40 different prophecies. It sounds like, wow, that's a lot uh, to extract out of one chapter mm-hmm. in Isaiah. Um, but the truth is that when you, you go through it, you'll find there are basically two themes that are developed in this list. And it's sort of very repetitious, meaning that one theme that accounts for, you know, maybe 10 of these 40 prophecies is the, the idea of the suffering of the servant. So it, it speaks in one about the servant being rejected and another one about him suffering, another one about being, being killed, one about being abused, one about being despised, one about being oppressed, one about being afflicted, one about being confined, one about being persecuted. So you really have you know, several different ways of saying essentially the same thing. And that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that sort of expands into, you know, ten different prophecies, where it really is essentially one. And, then, and that's, that's actually what I've got. I do have, in, in my New King James Study Bible, I do have a list of ten prophecies. Now, the, the one that I, I, I think, I think I'm going to run with this one because I don't think we can do 40 because, it's <laughs> uh, as you said, there's a lot of repetition and I really don't think we need to do that. But uh, it says he will be exalted. Uh, that's uh, 52 verse 13. I just read that. The uh, corresponding fulfillment, according to my New King James Study Bible uh, notes, is Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. It goes on this, of course, to the Carmen Christi, uh, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, of course, that's borrowing from, as I, as I mentioned, a, uh, a verse in, or a passage rather, in Isaiah chapter 45, where that is entirely attributed to God, not to Jesus. And yet, uh, Paul seems to misappropriate that, that verse and uh, redirect that uh, glory, if you like, to Jesus. And that is what is being referenced as a fulfillment of Isaiah 52.13. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I suppose, is, um, you know, one of the things that almost doesn't fit into this list, meaning that if virtually the entire list of 40 is highlighting the rejection, the suffering, the being despised and abused and rejected and oppressed and afflicted and confined and persecuted, you mm. know, it, it seems, and, and exalted. So we're going to have to understand where the exalted fits in. Um, but that theme of the exaltation of the servant is not really a, a major, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that's repeated here a dozen times. The, in the list, what comes up repeatedly, and it accounts for uh, about a quarter of the entire list, is the suffering and rejection and, and um, abuse and killing, etc. And the, the second theme that comes up repeatedly is the interpretation, meaning that the evaluation of what was this suffering for, to what end. Um, so if you go through the list, it, it has, and these are separate items on the list, um, bears the sins of the world, bears the penalty of mankind's transgressions, a sacrifice provided that, that provides peace between man and God, the sin bearer of mankind, a sacrificial lamb who dies for the sins of the world, an offering for sin, a justification for man before God, the sin-bearer for all mankind, gives up his life to save mankind, the sin-bearer for all mankind. So there you have, again, about another ten or so 
on the list that say the exact same thing. Mm. That, um, you know, essentially this list is really saying two things. Number one, the servant is going to suffer and be rejected and despised. And number two, the assertion that that suffering will accomplish something, which is the, the um, atonement for sin um, of those who will believe in him. Um, and so I think that what I would like to do, if we could, is really think about two issues which really will turn into three issues. And I think that um, this really, I think, will help clarify, I believe, the major uh, weakness with what the, the list is trying to accomplish. Meaning that if we think about what is the agenda of this list and the list maker, list makers, uh, they're basically trying to say that um, the, the thrust of this list is that Isaiah 53 really brings overwhelming evidence proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Um, and not just that he was the Messiah, but the Messiah who will um, accomplish this uh, atonement for the sins of the world. That's, that's basically, as we've said in the past um, shows, that is the Christian uh, view of what the Messiah is supposed to accomplish. Um, mm-hmm. You know, his name will be Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that the, the Redeemer will come to Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. The, the whole thrust of the Christian um, concept of the Messiah is that he comes to redeem us from sin. And so the, the list makers here are claiming that this is exactly what uh, Isaiah 53 accomplishes, that it, it identifies the purpose of the Messiah coming, and it proves that Jesus accomplished this. Um, so the first thing I would like to discuss, you know, I think that it's really a great starting point, if I say so myself, is <laughs> just to raise the question, is this passage in Isaiah, is this, a, is this clearly a messianic prophecy? Mm, that's what we want to know. Yeah, yeah, the basic assertion is that this is not just any messianic prophecy. This is the nuclear bomb. This is, as you said, this is the, the, the go-to passage for what a messianic prophecy really is all about. So mm-hmm. I would ask the question, well, is it, in, is it really a clear messianic prophecy? You know, we understand why Christians see this as a messianic prophecy, and the reason is because it sounds like Jesus, meaning they begin with their understanding, this is where they begin, it's almost an axiomatic assertion that Mm -hmm. Jesus was the Messiah who died for our sins. And if you begin with that understanding of who Jesus was, you could go back to Isaiah and say, well, that's what Isaiah seems to be saying. It sounds like Isaiah 53. Um, But the question is, you know, this sounds like what we discussed before about the, the person who first shoots their arrow and then draws the target around it. Mm-hmm. Th- this kind of easy reading and easy association uh, with the Messiah happens once you begin with Jesus and this vision of who Jesus was. But let's say you were to be reading this chapter of Isaiah before Jesus, pre-Christianity. Mm. Would it have been so clear uh, in the first century BCE, that this passage was a messianic prophecy. So let me mm-hmm. raise the following questions, and they're they're semi-rhetorical. But the first question would be, um, what about the text here? I want to focus on text. What is in the text that identifies this passage as a messianic prophecy? What I would say is that when we look to the Bible to see 
you know, where do you have indisputable uh, messianic prophecies that everyone agrees to? There's no question about them. Mm-hmm. So you'll find passages like Isaiah chapter 11 and Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33 and Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. And you'll find that all of the passages where all Jews and all Christians can agree, they're speaking about the Messiah, there are certain textual markers, certain mm-hmm. textual clues. One of them is that they associate this person with David, with being a descendant of David. That's a, that's a constant textual marker. And the second marker is that they always speak about this personality as a king. And the fact that he's a king is what allows you, it, it gives you the license to say, oh, this must be speaking about a messiah because kings are all messiahs. They were all anointed. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you have when you are reading uh, an indisputable, clear, undeniable messianic prophecy are these textual markers, and Isaiah 53 doesn't have any of these textual markers. So we would want to wonder, well, what about this passage then screams out that it's speaking about the Messiah? So what, what you're saying is, if I understand you correctly, I mean, let's, let's just boil it down. The word Messiah doesn't appear in this passage at all. Is that correct? That's correct. It's fair to assume, though, that, uh, I mean, if we read this within its context, it is talking about the Messianic age. Is that fair? Ah, <laughs> very good, Grasshopper. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> we, we have spoken about this in the past, that the vast majority of Messianic prophecy in the Scriptures are not speaking about the person of the mm-hmm. Messiah, but they do speak about what's going to be going on in the world when the Messiah is here. Right. Right. And, and we're going to see, it's not, by the way, it's not immediately apparent, it's not the clearest thing in the world, that this is speaking about the, the times of the Messiah. Um, but it'll turn out to be, yes, that this is, and we have to understand why. We're going to have to look at the textual reasons why we know for sure that it is speaking about the Messianic age. But that doesn't mean that the focus of the passage is on the person of the Messiah. Right. Um, and well, this is obviously what the study note that I just read is trying to assert. It says, although Isaiah refers to the, the nation of Israel as my servant, the preeminent servant of the Lord was, as they say, clearly a unique person, a suffering Messiah, yet to come. Although, as you just pointed out, Messiah is not in the text. One thing that it seems, at least, that the text seems to be speaking about a person, because the text is speaking in the in, in the singular. singular. Mm-hmm. It speaks about he, it speaks about him, it uses the word servant, which is singular. So, mm-hmm. one would certainly be within their rights to think that it's describing an individual. But I'm asking the question, but why would we assume that the individual, if it really is an individual, is the Messiah? Mm-hmm. Now, right. you could say, well, who else would it be talking about? Who, what other characters are there in the world? But the truth is that we know there are other personalities that the Bible speaks about. The Bible speaks about prophets. There are many prophets in the world. The Bible mm-hmm. speaks about uh, redeemers like Moses, who was not the Messiah. He was a central figure. So, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it's an absurd thing to suggest that it's speaking about the Messiah. But I'm trying to point out that textually, there's nothing that forces you or compels you to assume that 
the servant is the Messiah. A second thing, we have about a dozen passages in the Bible that are indisputably, undeniably messianic, meaning about the person of the Messiah, that are clear in that all Jews and all Christians are in agreement that they're about the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And they're consistent in that you have about a dozen that speak about the Messiah in exactly the same way. They speak about the Messiah as the king that will reign at the time when the world has been has reached its utopian uh, climax of world peace and universal knowledge of God. And that's consistent and clear. And I would say another problem is that if we know that about the Messiah, that's not consistent with this uh, portrait, meaning that that the interpretation of Isaiah 53 as speaking about the Messiah, which again wouldn't be logically impossible, but it doesn't match, it doesn't fit into what we already know about the Messiah from passages where it's undisputable, undeniable, clearly about the Messiah. I think that would be another problem. Mm. A third issue is that this reading, that this, I, this reading of Isaiah 53, that it speaks about the Messiah who dies for our sins and atones for our sins, I think one of the greatest weaknesses of this reading is that there's no corroboration for it, meaning that this basically is the Christian job description of the Messiah, that he comes to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Mm. And I believe one of the greatest weaknesses is that if that really were the role of the Messiah, I would have expected that it would have been developed uh, consistently and organically throughout the entire Bible and not rest upon a single isolated passage in Isaiah, which is not even clearly a messianic prophecy. You know, I, I read a book a while ago that was written as a, a missionary campaign now in, in uh, going across the world to, to base their, it's a campaign based upon Isaiah 53 of all chapters. And uh, they they wrote a, a theoretical book to sort of, uh, I guess, equip the workers in this campaign. It's called The Gospel According to Isaiah 53. And in the introduction to this book, written by Mitch Glazer, who's one of the leading missionaries in the world, um, he says, interestingly, he says, there's no other prophecy in the entire Old Testament that explicitly links the death of the Messiah with his work of atonement. Now, I, f- I would find that uh, problematic, meaning that if this really is the major reason for the Messiah coming, why would it be restricted to only one passage in the entire Bible and a passage which is not clearly speaking about the Messiah? Because the claim really is that this is the thrust of the Old Testament's teaching, meaning that the assertion here on this list is that the major view of what the Messiah is supposed to be is the sin-bearer, the one who mm. suffers and dies for our sins. And, and that's, that's the, the idea of the Messiah. And I'm asking here the question, well, if that really is the, the main job of the Messiah, why is it only found in this one isolated passage in Isaiah, which is not a clear messianic prophecy, meaning that it's not clear like the other messianic prophecies, which no one disputes, no one questions, no one wonders about them, because it had, they have all the textual markers of the Messiah. Here, as we're going to see, it's open to incredible, I'll just give you uh, an example, uh, there's a, a Christian article that I found that showed that there have been 
over 15 different interpretations among Christians mm-hmm. about who the servant is. Not just the Messiah, there are many Christians that reject the reading of this passage of, as speaking about the Messiah. And they, they suggest 14 other possibilities for who it might be speaking about. So the fact that um, even among Christians, there, there is no universal agreement that this is a messianic prophecy really says to me it's, it's certainly not clear. Whatever it is, it's not clear. So we're basically left with the only source for the idea that the, the main job of the Messiah is to die for our sins. It's all rests. It's all hinging upon one isolated single passage in the book of Isaiah, which isn't even clearly a messianic prophecy. Mm. So maybe we should see who the players are in this passage, if that's all right. In, in, because in the, in the following, in the next verse, uh, the last verse of chapter 52, it says, so shall he, now in my New King James, it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It's got a little little star there. And if I follow that down, it says, well, literally, startle. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. I think that if we look at the last verses in chapter 52, we'll see something interesting. We'll see Mm -hmm. that probably the one person who is the least likely to be the subject of this chapter is Jesus. It's almost surprising. And you would, you would base that on the, on the last three verses of, yes, of uh, yes. 52, and is what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's, it's often not really appreciated that I think the last few verses of chapter 52 show us that whoever this chapter is speaking about, even if you want to say it's talking about the Messiah, but the least likely candidate, the person that is that you can almost assume would be the last person on the planet, in the history of the planet, it could be speaking about is Jesus of Nazareth. Let me explain why. Hmm. The, the, the last three verses here are so critical because they really do set the stage for chapter 53. It, it begins, um, see, right, my servant will prosper. So this is really why this is the, the, the fourth of the servant songs. And we're told that the servant is going to be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high. So we, we were, we're, we're told at the beginning that the destiny of this servant is to be exalted, raised up, lifted very high. I mean, we're saying, you know, three different ways, four different ways, the same thing, that mm-hmm. there's going to be a glorious future for this servant. That's what we're told. By the way, and the, the most critical thing to do as we're going through the chapter is to always ask the question, who is speaking? Who are the speakers? Mm. So it's very clear that God here is speaking about his servant. That's the speaker. So God says, behold, see that my servant in the future will prosper, be exalted, lifted up, and be very high. We don't know who the servant is yet, but that's what we know is going to be the destiny of the future for the servant. But then God tells us something very, very important. What God says basically in the next two verses is, that when this servant is exalted, it's going to come as a total shock and surprise to the nations and kings of the world. That's the reaction that, that's going to happen when the servant is exalted. He says in verse 14, just as there are many who were astonished at you saying, surely his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he startle many nations and kings 
will shut their mouths, mouths because of him. Why? Because that which they had not been told they will see, that which they had not heard they will understand, meaning that the nations and kings never expected to see this servant exalted. It was not what they expected. The, the, the two things that we learn from the last three verses of chapter 52 is that we're told that there's going to be a glorious future for mm-hmm. God's servant. He's going to be exalted, rifted up, raised very high, and prosper. And we're told that, but when that happens, it's going to totally shock and surprise the nations and kings of the world. Now, let's think about this for a moment. I'm assuming you're going to say, if Jesus comes again, there's going to be at least 2 billion people around the world going, well, of course. Well, you know, think about it. There's 2.2 billion Christians in the world. There's 1.5 billion Muslims who also believe in Jesus. Who also believe that Jesus is going to come back. Uh, revisit, right? Okay. Right. And even if they're not necessarily eschatologically inclined, they still they, 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 they see Jesus as a great prophet and a great Messiah. They really look up to him. And even if you're not Christian or Muslim, Jesus is still. When I went to high school, we, we had to listen to the, the you know the the, the uh, was it a rock opera called Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. And that yeah. he's clearly he's clearly in history. You know the most well known famous adored person, even if you're not a Christian or a Muslim. But the point is that if you had to pick one person, if you had to imagine throughout the history of the world, if the world was going to vote on the person they're most expecting, they're most expecting, who would be the most likely candidate? When you think about who is going to be the one that at the end of history is going to be lifted up, exalted, and raised very high in the eyes of the whole world, most of the world through most of our history have assumed it would be Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the problem here is that Isaiah is telling us that when this servant is ultimately exalted and raised up and lifted very high, it's going to totally shock and surprise the entire world. Their minds are going to be blown. Now, if it really is talking about Jesus, it's not going to surprise anyone because Jesus is exactly who most of the world is expecting to fulfill this prophecy. Mm-hmm. So. What we see here is that Jesus really, in the entire history of mankind, is probably the least likely candidate to be this servant of anyone. Yes. So if I can just, let me just clarify that. Uh, verse 15, uh, the last uh, verse of chapter 52, so shall he startle many nations. Now, really, what you're saying is if anyone deserves to be startled when Jesus returns, it's going to be the Jews. It should exactly. say, so, so he shall startle the Jews and the, the leaders of the Jews, let's say, will shut their mouths for what they, because uh, they were blind and they had veils over their face and so on and so forth. But it doesn't say that. Right. Meaning now, that if it really was talking about Jesus here. The only people in the world, the only people that would be shocked and surprised would be the nation of Israel, the Jews. And that's what Isaiah should have said. Isaiah should have said, behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be exalted, lifted up and very high. And just as there were many who were astonished at you saying, surely his visage was marred more than any men and his form more than the sons of men. So he will totally blow the minds of Israel and the Jewish people who just didn't get it and now they're Mm. seeing boy were we wrong (laughs) we were wrong so wrong that's what it should have said that's what it should have said now while we're here in this in this verse before we move on to chapter 53 this is quoted by paul in romans 15 verse 21 and in verse 20 it says paul says i have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where christ was named lest i should build on another man's foundation but as it is written 
to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and to whom uh, have not heard, they shall understand. And for this reason, I'm coming to you. And he talks about going to Spain and, and so on and so forth. So he's talking about going to the nations. He's quoting that verse in Isaiah as, uh, as the reason why he's going outside of, uh, of the land of Israel and bringing the gospel uh, to the nations. This is, uh, this is where he's going. As we get into Isaiah chapter 53, it continues, it goes on and says, uh, and I have a couple of questions about this. It says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, before we go on, let me ask, because you were talking about uh, it's important to know who's speaking and you identified in the, in the previous verses who is speaking. Who is speaking now from verse 1 in 53? Well, that's a no-brainer because the previous verses told us exactly who is going to be shocked and surprised. In chapter 53, it's no longer God speaking because it's a group of people speaking. A group of people are saying, who would have believed what we are hearing? So it, it's no longer God speaking. Usually God, by the way, doesn't get surprised too often in his history. Right. <laughs> so here it's a group of people that are speaking and a group of people that are totally shocked and surprised. And they're saying, who would have believed what we're hearing? I mean, in the previous verse, it said that that which they had not been told, they're going to see, and that which they had not heard, they will understand, meaning that they're, they're now seeing and hearing something that they never expected. And so now those people in verse 15, the previous verse, who were shocked to see what they're seeing and hearing what they're hearing, the nations and kings of the world, now chapter 53 gives you their expression, meaning those people that are shocked now express their shock. And they say, mm -hmm. who would have believed what we're hearing? We never expected this. This is totally... Who would have thunk it? Yeah, exactly. Who would have thunk it? But, now, but we have a problem now, Michael. We have a problem because uh, in, in uh, the last verse of 52, as I just read, Paul says, you know, this is the reason why I'm going to the nations. He, he agrees. It's at least that it's about the nations. It's not about Israel. And yet when we get to 53 verse 1, he says that's about Israel because we go to uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, and the day that, that, that Paul's talking about, it, he's talking about Israel. They, Israel, have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes of hearing, and hearing by the word of God, and so on and so forth. Now, he's not the only one who disagrees with you. The other one, of course, is uh, John, the, the gospel of John, also quotes from here, and he quotes in uh, John chapter 12, and he says that the day is also uh, Israel. He says from uh, verse 37, but although he had done many signs before them, they did not believe him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because I, I you know, and so on and so forth. So, the previous verse, Paul says, is about the nations. The next verse, both John and Paul say, is about, uh, about Israel. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that those two readings by Paul and John are sort of uh, plucking this verse, Isaiah 53, verse 1, out of context. Um, actually, it hasn't happened yet. Isaiah is telling us what's going to happen in the future. Mm. When these people are shocked, you see, it hasn't happened yet. All this is taking place at the time of the redemption of the world, mm -hmm. and it hasn't happened yet. So the nations mm. of the world have not been. By the way, we, we know for sure this hasn't happened yet. We haven't had 
a, a mass confession by the entire world no. that they've been shocked about anything. No. So, so this is a speech, really, that has not happened yet. And Isaiah is telling us in his prophecy that when the servant is exalted, when that happens, it's going to shock the entire world, the nations and kings of the world. And chapter 53 at least most of it, is going to be their confession, their speech. Their confession. Yes. And so that's what they say. They say, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root, a, a root out of dry ground. He has no form or, or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him, is what they're saying. Now, there's uh, in my, my New King James study Bible here, he says, uh, it says that that's a prophecy fulfilled, and it refers to Mark chapter 15, rather, verses 17 and 19, uh, which, which basically just says they, they clothed him with purple, they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And it cites verse 2 there, together with uh, verse uh, 14 of uh, 52, as a fulfillment of prophecy. That's uh, the second of the ten. I think that we're pretty clear here in terms of what the Christological reading of this is. You know, they're very focused mm. on Jesus. And I think that, you know, it's important for us to understand the, the problem with this assertion. And, you know, the first problem that we tried to look at was, you know, is it really clear that this chapter is speaking about the person of the Messiah? And I mentioned, you know, there are certain textual uh, markers that are not here, and it's not a consistent view. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that there are many modern Christian scholars and commentaries who don't see this as a messianic prophecy. We should point out that um, if you go back to the, the Gospels themselves, it's very clear that the followers of Jesus, his apostles, never understood this chapter of Isaiah to be a messianic prophecy. Mm. Um, you know, in the very first time the whole question of the Messiah arises is in Matthew 16. It never comes up before. You know, you've had 15 chapters of Matthew, and finally in chapter 16, Jesus asks the question, who do you think I am? <laughs> you know, we've been, mm. been hanging out together for a while. So yeah, who, do you, you who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, ding, 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 right, for 25 yeah. points. So <laughs> at that point, right, after he, he correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, we're told that Jesus began to tell them, look, guys, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and raised up on the third day. He goes through the whole Christian mm. vision of what the Messiah is supposed to be. And Peter says, well, of course, you're the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I mean, that no, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he you should have, but he didn't. He said, heaven forbid that such a terrible thing should happen. And then Jesus calls him Satan and, yeah. and all of that. But the, the point much. is that, that when you go through the Gospels, every time – now, I look, if you had to ask me, you know, I don't believe personally that Jesus said these things. I don't really believe he said that I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and be killed. I think he knew that – you know, if he did claim to be the Messiah in Jerusalem, it would get him in trouble. Mm. But I, I think that these are probably words that are put into Jesus' mouth afterwards. But the reaction mm. of, this, of his apostles, you know, in Mark chapter 9, we're told that he taught his disciples that he has to, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they're going to kill him, and after that he's killed, he'll rise on the third day. And it says, but they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. 
so mm. what's clear when you go through the Gospels is that in that first century, there wasn't this widely known understanding that Isaiah 53 was telling you that the whole purpose of the Messiah coming was to suffer and die for the sins of the world, for those who mm. believe in him. Because when Jesus asked, who am I? And Peter said, you're the Messiah. Peter must have had an understanding in his mind what the Messiah was. When he used mm. that word, where did Peter get his concept of the Messiah from? So, he, he obviously he imbibed, he soaked up, you know, in his youth and, and in the world around him, he soaked up what was the generally held view of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And what you see here is that one of the things that Peter and the apostles never heard, it was just never in the air, was that we should look forward to the coming of the Messiah one day because he's going to suffer and die and atone for our sins if we believe in him. That is clearly not the understanding that the apostles had. And so it, it, I think it provides us with another reason to question whether or not you could say that Isaiah 53 is a clear messianic prophecy, meaning that the one mm. thing is clear is that prior to Christianity, um, this was not an expectation that the Jewish people had. It was not the way they understood this chapter of Isaiah. And if... If it was really that clear, then that would have been the clear understanding. No one mistakes uh, and misreads Isaiah chapter 11. It's, Isaiah, it's clearly speaking about the Messiah presiding over a world of peace and harmony and, and uh, disarmament. I mean, it speaks clearly about what came to be expected as part of the messianic vision. Uh, so it goes. It goes on to say in uh, fifty-three, verse three. He said, uh, and and uh, I suppose the Jewish interpretation is that this is the continuation of the uh, confession of the kings of the nations. Uh, from a Christian point of view, this I suppose is a continuation of the confession of the Jews. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Uh, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely. He has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, and we esteemed uh, him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Okay, so that's up to verse 4. Now, I do have in my, uh, in my 10 uh, Messianic prophecies in my New King James Study Bible, it's, uh, it references there in verse 4, uh, Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 25, which says, uh, Who was delivered up? Jesus who was de delivered up for our offenses and was raised beca uh, because of our justification. It also has First uh, Peter 2, 24 to 25. Uh, Jesus who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, uh, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed, and it's starting to quote uh, from a little further on, we're going to get to it, uh, stripes we were healed, and uh, you were like uh, sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It, it's not hard to uh, tease out the way Christians are reading this chapter. Um, you know, they are single-minded, uh, at least, uh, I shouldn't say they're single-minded, among those Christians who see this as a messianic prophecy that speaks about Jesus, they're pretty single-minded in terms of how they read this chapter. Um, you know, as you saw from Carmen's list, you know, they squeeze 40 prophecies out mm. of this chapter. So, Indeed. Well, one thing that I found that's interesting, though, is that they didn't squeeze, at least in this short list in the New King James Study Bible, they didn't squeeze in Matthew chapter 8, which, which actually quotes uh, from this very verse. And it's uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, which says... 
uh, well, from 16, when evening had come, they, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, it says, not sorrows, but sicknesses. And basically, I suppose what it's saying is that uh, that is a fulfillment of, of this verse. Therefore, it's again, it's talking about the Jews, and it's talking about Jesus casting demons out of the Jews. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, um, you know, there are two ways in which uh, this passage is um, seen. One is that they see this as uh, predictive of what they call the Messiah's healing ministry, mm-hmm. that, you know, they take these phrases of, healing our wounds, etc., literally, as the Messiah will come and actually heal people, heal their sicknesses. And then they take it as well, less literally, more figuratively, about the healing of, you know, real sickness, which is sin. Um, so this, this is the profile. The profile, again, the, their reading of this chapter is that, A, it's speaking about the suffering of the Messiah as an atonement for sin, and B, that the, and the one who fulfilled it was Jesus. That's, mm. again, the, the, that's what they're trying to accomplish with this list here. They're trying to define the concept of the Messiah and identify that person as Jesus. What I, what I try to do is raise the question, is this really, you know, a slam-dunk uh, messianic prophecy, meaning is... Is it really that clear that this passage is about the Messiah? And I try to show, you know, a number of reasons why it's not that clear. And the proof in the pudding is, you know, the, the, the innumerable number of Christian commentaries who don't see this as a prophecy about the Messiah. But the mm. second question, which I think is, you know, needs to be raised, is fine. So if we, for argument's sake accept the premise that it's speaking about the Messiah. But then the second question is, well, but how do you know it's speaking about Jesus? Meaning that the most that the Christian can extract from this passage, the most they can extract is that the Messiah will suffer for the sins of the world. But the problem is that Isaiah doesn't identify Jesus as the one who will suffer. Meaning that the most that the Christian reading can extract is the job description of the Messiah but the, what they're not able to extract from this is the um, claim that it was Jesus was the one who suffered and atoned for the sins of the world. That's simply an assertion, a belief. But there's nothing that really proves it. What I'd like to do is share why, you know, I remember when they had the O.J. Simpson trial, <laughs> the famous lines was, if the glove doesn't fit, you've got to acquit. So mm. I think the problem is going to be this that if we carefully read Isaiah and what Isaiah says about the servant, we'll see that it doesn't line up. It does not line up with what we know about Jesus. And that's the problem, that there really is a twofold problem. Number one, there's nothing in Isaiah that specifically identifies Jesus as the one who will fulfill this role as the sin bearer. It's just an assumption that Christians make. But number two, I believe that the language of Isaiah actually doesn't fit with Jesus. It would eliminate him as a candidate. And I tried to show before that the last few verses of chapter 52 seem to really fit that, meaning that, that Jesus would certainly not be the kind of person that would shock the world if he were to be lifted up, exalted, and raised very high. Mm, mm. So if we go through the chapter 53, I think we're going to find the same thing. Uh, 
let's just give a few examples. One I think is not that significant, but I'll just say it because I think it's cute. Um, one of the things that Isaiah says about the servant is that he will be hard to look at. His visage will be marred. People will mm-hmm. turn their faces from him. I mean, Isaiah describes a hideous character, someone who's totally hideous. Now, this is, this is I suppose, the great um, theologian Mel Gibson did his very, <laughs> very best to, uh, to portray this, I suppose, in his movie, uh, The Passion, as uh, a, 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 a human being who was bloodied beyond recognition. Ah. Um, and I suppose that's what, what he was trying to achieve based on this particular verse. That's often the way Christians will spin this, but there's a problem. And I'll share with you the problem. Isaiah is characterizing the servant, as an example, uh, uh, as someone who will suffer. He's called, for example, in Isaiah, Ish Mach Ovav. It means literally a man of pains. And it speaks in Isaiah about him being a person uh, of sickness, bearing sickness. Mm-hmm. So the way Christians will understand this is that, well, Jesus was a man of pain because he suffered tremendously when he was scourged and he was beaten and he had a crown of thorns put on his head and he was crucified. I mean, as you said, that's how Mel Gibson tries to portray the crucifixion and the the passion of Jesus as the most horrible suffering a person can go through. Hmm. The problem is that the, the sense of the Hebrew is not like that, meaning... Ishmachovav, a man of pain, really in Hebrew speaks about a man whose entire life is characterized by pain. It's not speaking in the in the syntax in the in the sense of the Hebrew of a person who for a short period of time in their life experienced tremendous pain. Because the truth is that if that were the way you would read it, it could apply to every single person. Every mm-hmm. person on the planet has gone through some period in their life of tremendous pain. So you could then say about anyone, he's a man of pain, Ishmaqovav. The the sense of the Hebrew is not that there was a period in his life, a, 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 you know, a day or so, where he mm-hmm. went through tremendous pain. It's saying that the the servant is characterized as a man of constant pain, constant suffering, that, that suffering was the ongoing experience of this servant. So the problem is that um, when it speaks about this person being a hideous and, and, and people turning their faces away from him and, and, and disfigured and horrible, it's not referring to uh, you know, a, a, a brief moment of their life when they looked horrible, you know, imagine... And they were beaten, beaten beyond recognition. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's speaking about someone who, that was their entire life, was that people turned away from him, people despised him, rejected him, and we're going to see that the, the great weakness here is really twofold. Number one, uh, we could ask the question, how many times does the Bible say that the Messiah will be despised? How many times does the Bible say the Messiah will suffer? Hmm. So the truth is the Bible never says it unless you assume that this chapter in Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. Right. But the problem there is, again, you're stuck with you know the most important passage in the Christian reading of the Bible being an isolated uh, reference with no corroboration and very unclear. 
that's one side of the problem. One side of the problem is that when you go through the entire Hebrew Scriptures, this is not a well-developed, corroborated reading of the Bible that mm-hmm. we're told you know, in numerous passages throughout the reading of the Bible that the Messiah will be despised and rejected and will suffer. But the second question is, is this something that really speaks about Jesus? Meaning, was Jesus a hideous-looking person that people couldn't look at? Um, I don't know what he looked like, but from his press photos, you know, and from the way <laughs> from the way Christians have imagined the way he looks. Well, I mean, we've already seen in the in the list of three sixty five that there was a uh, they they cited a, a verse in the Psalms uh, that said that he was quite um, pretty good looking. Well, but go to Google Images, right? Just go to Google yeah, Images, yeah. <laughs> type in Jesus. You have a an Adonis. You have he's, a beautiful. He's very, he's very he's very pretty. Gorgeous. He's a hunk. He's a, <laughs> I'm telling you, the, the, I don't know that he's a hunk. I think he's probably more pretty. <laughs> I'd use the word pretty. <laughs> he does his hair. He uses shampoo. He's he's pretty. He's never portrayed as hideous to look at. No, that's true. And and again, Isaiah is saying that 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 the life of this servant was one in which people hated him, despised mm. him, rejected him, uh, found him hideous to look at, and it was a lifetime, a lifetime of suffering and pain. Mm. And the problem is that these are not descriptions. Let's take, for example, despised and rejected. So if you take Jesus after his death, can you really say that he was despised and rejected? He basically is the most popular human being in the history of the world. So mm. it's hard to say about Jesus of Nazareth that he's despised and rejected post-mortem, meaning after he's dead, he is the superstar. He is but if you, if you do refine this voice to Israel, if the voice of Isaiah 53 uh, is Israel saying, you know, in not, not the kings oh, of the nation, but right. Israel saying... So you're saying the rejection is when it says despised and rejected. You're that limit- he was despised and rejected by by, by Israel, Israel, by Jews. Okay. So well, because and I'm saying that because the the New Testament, at least in the couple of verses that we just cited earlier on, um, makes quotes from this passage and puts it into the voice of Israel. It, it refers to the they as Israel. Right. So if, again, I I hmm. would question that reading, and I think yep. next week we'll we'll show why, but. If if we were to take that reading, that it's referring to Israel expressing its own rejection of Jesus, mm. then you could argue, you could argue that that post death of Jesus, Israel has rejected him. Mm. I wouldn't say, by the way, despised, uh, and it's clearly, you know, uh, not talking about you know, suffering great pains after he mm. died. But the problem with that reading is that it falls apart if you take the period before the death of Jesus, meaning that if it's strictly speaking about the relationship of Israel vis-a-vis Jesus, and you ask the question, during his lifetime, was he despised and rejected of Israel? So what's fascinating is that when you go through the Gospels, it seems to teach the exact opposite. Meaning he was very popular. He was the most popular person around. You know, here in Mark chapter 3, uh, it says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from the Galilee followed him. Hearing mm. all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyrants. I mean, the people are flocking in great multitudes from all over the world. You don't turn water into wine and not to, expo- uh, not to expect to become a celebrity overnight. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that's 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 a that's a huge thing. I mean, that's a great kickstart to the uh, uh, to the ministry. But the 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 Gospels repeatedly speak about how incredibly popular he is. In Luke Indeed. chapter two, we're told, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor, meaning that we're told that 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 the that the regard that people had for him, and by the way, he only circulated among Jews, was great. And in Luke 4, then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to the Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone, not a few people. Mm. So when you go through the Gospels, you find basically... Jesus being very, very popular, mm. and so it's and yet and yet afterwards. So afterwards, though, because Jews aren't flocking to quote accept Jesus into their heart as personal Lord and Savior, uh, I, I can see a Christian reading this and saying, "Well, this is obviously about uh, this is the Jews having rejected Jesus and so on and so forth." But you're quite right. During his uh, ministry, as far as we can read, he was the most popular guy there. He's coming into Jerusalem, right? The Passion Week. Yeah, huge multitudes greet him, Hosanna, the son of David. He's doing the circus acts with the two donkeys, and everyone's just blown away by it. It, It's 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 hard. It's hard. It's really hard to say that here was a person. Again, you can't read this as saying that he had a couple of enemies. When it says that the servant, his life was defined as being despised and rejected, it means that a career of being universally despised and rejected. Mm. And the Gospels make it very, very difficult to say that because they're consistently portraying him as immensely popular. Um, mm. So it's just very hard. It's very hard to read the, 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 the life of Jesus back into Isaiah 53 because Isaiah is describing a servant that is hideous to look at, that mm. is suffering, not just suffering for a few hours in his lifetime, Isaiah describes a man of constant pain and torment, a man whose entire life is a life of suffering. Marked by, by suffering. And by being well, despised and rejected. And, but continuing with, with uh, Christian eyes, if I may, continuing reading through Isaiah 53, uh, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Now, the Christian would read that and go, okay, that's because he took on our our sins, and he, he died on the cross, and so on and so forth. The chastisement uh, of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. And this is where Quita, uh, sorry, where Peter was quoting from that I read a little bit earlier. This is First Peter two twenty four and twenty five quotes from this uh, uh, passage here. By his stripes we were healed. We'd all like sheep had gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And then the following uh, passage is that which we began with. Um, the Ethiopian reading this passage, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shearers silence. So he opened not his mouth. And we actually have, Michael, we do have a, a lot of uh, examples in the Gospels where Jesus is asked questions in, during the Passion narrative and he doesn't answer them. And uh, he was taken from prison uh, and, and from judgments. Uh, and who will declare his generation, for he was cut off from the land of the living. We we know that he was crucified and he died, and the Ethiopian says to Philip, who's this speaking about, uh, for the transgression of my people, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is, again, part of the, um, the, the lack of fit, the lack of, uh, you know, a, a neatly... A lining up of what Isaiah actually says and 
uh, what we know from the Gospels about Jesus. Um, you just alluded to before, you know, whether or not he really was silent in the face of his accusers. Uh, he seems to have defended himself very cleverly when he's basically on trial for sedition. He's on trial mm-hmm. for being claiming to be the king of the Jews. The Romans mm-hmm. didn't take kindly to people who challenged their authority. So Jesus says in, in John 18, well, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, if it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. He's mm. basically saying to the Romans, look, I'm not a threat. My kingdom is a, a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. So at his trial, in John at least, he defends himself quite assiduously. Um, and then we're told that he did no violence. Uh, you know, that's, that's hard to really, uh, you know, take at face value. We know, for example, in Luke chapter 8, he causes an entire herd of swine to be needlessly killed. You know, there were these people who were possessed by demons. Uh, if Jesus had the power to take the demons out, he could have put the demons into a cloud or into a rock. But he, mm. in the story, puts them into a herd of swine and they go crashing over Drive to the cliff. Sea. Uh, you know, in the Bible, you know, the, the, the causing any pain needlessly to animals is seen as a grave sin. Bilaam mm. was, was questioned, like, why are you striking your donkey? You know, it's considered to be a biblical prohibition to cause any needless pain to animals. Mm-hmm. So here, mm-hmm. it seems to be just the unnecessary slaughtering of an entire herd of swine. didn't have to be. Um, in Luke 19, there's a famous parable. It's not a story that actually happened. But in the parable, which is speaking about Jesus, he is the king says, those who will not have me reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Um, in Mark 21, we're told that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He was hungry. He hang- hankers for some figs. He goes to the tree. There are no figs on the tree. So in his anger, he curses the tree. It withers up, mm. and it another- doesn't produce figs anymore. And we know from Mark chapter 11, it wasn't even the season for growing figs. Now, mm. obviously, someone that had that kind of a power could have blessed the tree that it should produce figs. But the important thing is that in the Hebrew Scriptures... There are grave prohibitions against causing any damage to a fruit tree. And so here, there's the, just the, the, the needless destruction of this fig tree for no fault of its own. Um, actually, it's such a problematic story, you know, the, the doing of violence to the fig tree, that many Christian interpreters say it's really not about the fig tree. It's really cursing Israel. Israel is the fig tree. Um, but that's not a real clear reading of the text. Mm. Um, in John chapter 2... Jesus takes a whip, by the way, after having already spied out the temple. So it's not as if he comes to the temple and sees something that upsets him and shocks him. He's been to the temple. He knows what's going on. He comes back later with a whip and chases out the money changers. Um, you know, that's clearly not something you would say Mahatma Gandhi would do, who's really a man of peace and nonviolence. Uh, In Luke chapter 23, he tells his disciples, if you don't have a sword, sell your clothes and go buy a sword. It's it's just, it's hard. It's not impossible, but it's hard. It's interesting that you mentioned, that's actually Luke 22, verse uh, around uh, the end of that chapter, I think. And he says, you know, we're, we're, we've got some trouble up ahead, guys, and uh, you better, you know, if you don't have a sword, you better get a, sell your, sell your garment and get a sword because we're going to need some swords. And uh, well, this, this is what he said, because, and then he says, quote, because uh, it must be fulfilled, which is written, it's still going to be accomplished, uh, which is written about me, that he was numbered with transgressors. That also, that, that is actually Isaiah 53 verse, in fact, the last verse, verse 12, 
uh, and it does relate to verse 9. And, uh, and they said, oh, well, look, you know, here's a couple of swords. And he said, beautiful, done, let's go. Well, and we know that one of his uh, followers, I think Peter, chops off the ear of the high priest. off an ear. Um, so, again, it's hard to read the Gospels and say, oh, here is a person, nonviolent personified, um, no deceit in his mouth. Now, here is interesting that in John 18, Jesus says to the Romans that he always spoke openly, there was nothing in secret. I mean, he, he claims to be a paradigm of full disclosure and transparency, nothing was ever a secret. Yet in Mark 4, they ask him why he's always teaching in parables, and he right. says, well, I'm teaching in parables so that they on so the they outside won't understand. won't understand lest they repent. Yeah. You would think that he would want them to repent, but yes. again, he says to the Romans, on the one hand, that I always spoke openly, nothing was secret, and yet he says, I only spoke in parables so that no one will understand me. In Mark 16, I'm sorry, in Matthew 16, he says, at the end of that chapter we studied before, he says, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. He warns them sternly. Mm. So mm. he says to the Romans, I never taught anything. There's no secrets. Everything was in the open. And yet he tells his disciples, don't, don't tell the Messiah. In Luke 8, where he resurrects the little girl, he says, don't tell anyone I did this miracle. Uh, and again, in Romans, he told the Romans, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would have fought to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. So again, he's giving the impression that he has no, there's nothing to be feared from him. His movement was nonviolent, we're not of this world, and yet he tells his followers to go purchase swords. Um, hmm. So it, it's hard to say that here's a person that there's no deceit in his mouth. Also, by the way, you had read a verse previously, which is a huge problem. Um, in Hebrew, it's mipesha ami negalamo. Due to the transgressions of my people, they were wounded. I mean, that, that, they? Yeah, the, the word lamo uh, appears yeah. 54 times in the Hebrew, and it's always a plural. It means to them or they. So here you have a verse in Isaiah 53, which makes it pretty clear that the servant, whoever the servant is, is not one person. That's very interesting. So what you're saying is, okay, so now what I've got here is, um, in the New King James, at least, this is verse 8, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. But what you're saying is that it actually reads in the Hebrew, for the transgression of my people, they. They, they were stricken. So the suffering. They were stricken. The suffering is not to a person, but to a people. Um, another problem, I mean, I'm going to try and go through these quickly, is that uh, I think in verse 10, I think, I may be wrong, um, it says, if he. If his soul would acknowledge guilt, it's often read as if he'll make his soul into a guilt offering, um, but it's not really the way it has to be read. You could really read this chapter as saying, if his soul would acknowledge guilt, mm. um, he will be greatly rewarded by God. But the problem there is very interesting, that Isaiah is very clearly describing a servant whose reaction, whose, whose behavior is volitional, meaning that it's saying if the servant behaves in a certain way. Now, from a Christian reading, Jesus really was not acting as a free agent here, meaning that Jesus is sent by God to fulfill a role, and it wasn't his choice whether or not he was going to do this. Isaiah is describing a servant where it's not clear what he's going to do or what they're going to do. 
So the word if is problematic. And the reward that the servant's going to receive is he will see his seed. He'll prolong Hmm. his days. That is clearly problematic. The word seed in the Hebrew scriptures comes up over 200 times. And it's always referring to literal physical issue, physical descendants, children, um, Hmm. which is something Jesus did not have unless you except some of these Gnostic texts, which I don't even think yes. they have children. I think he certainly has a wife, but mm. uh, I think the Da Vinci Code, he has a daughter. Um, yep. But clearly in the Gospels, he doesn't. Certainly does not have a long life. Um, he, he lives a relatively short life, so he's not prolonging mm. his days. He's not seeing his seed. And uh, so again, it doesn't really fit so smoothly with Jesus. And finally, we're told that with his knowledge, my servant will cause many to be just. And also doesn't fit in with the Christian reading, because from a Christian reading, Jesus does not cause the justification of the wicked by his knowledge. He causes it through his blood, through his dying on the cross. Mm. So that's also a, a, a sort of a, a, a problematic phrase, because it's really not what Christians believe happens here. Now, mm. if we go back to what you had asked about these passages, which seem to speak about I think verses 4, 5, and 6, which are really the core uh, verses which speak about the atonement part and the suffering part. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really interesting that when I, I guess it was an occupational hazard, I had to go see the Passion of the Christ. It wasn't something I was looking forward to doing. It's um, just one of those things you want to blot out of your mind after you've seen it. It, it was just, painful. It was it was painful. Yeah. I remember I, I was sitting behind a couple. There was a, a Christian girl who had taken her boyfriend to the movie. He was a, a very big policeman, I think. And mm. he was not a Christian. And she was hoping that the movie was going to, I guess, inspire her boyfriend. She was a Christian. So I remember mm. after the film, she turns to him and she says, well, what did you think? She was very gushing. What did you think? And he says, what do you mean, what did I think? It was a movie about some guy being tortured for two hours. Yeah. So um, the movie begins, I never forget this, with a full screen um, and a verse from Isaiah. And it has Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Mm. And... The the Christian reading, really, the, the assertion that the servant, um, the suffering, is an atonement for the sins of others, is really based upon this verse, which it might surprise people to know is really a mistranslation. The, the Hebrew does not say that the servant was wounded for our transgressions. The Hebrew says the servant was wounded from our transgressions. Uh, right. now, it's a subtle difference, but let me give you an example. Um, imagine there's a... Now, I guess today this may not be typical of what a classroom looks like. It's more of what happened when I was a kid, you know, 50 years ago. But uh, imagine a classroom where there's a really rough class. You know, let's say they're, they're fifth or sixth graders. And there's a kid in the front of the classroom, Johnny, little Johnny, who's sitting there in his chair very nicely and he's raising his hand and answering questions and he's putting reinforcements in his notebook and he's taking notes and you know he's just smiling at the teacher and the rest of the class are throwing spitballs and throwing you know paper airplanes and and they're just running amok this class and here Mm. is this one student johnny who's just so polite and so attentive and so studious 
what do you think is going to happen to little Johnny after school? So basically, this poor kid, they're going to beat the hell out of him. <laughs> this is going to mm-hmm. happen. So he's not suffering for the sins of the rest of the class. He is suffering from their um, sinfulness as a result of their sinfulness. Because this, of. Because of, as a result of. Not from, not for, meaning that for gives you the impression that it's in order to accomplish something. It's, mm-hmm. it's for the purpose of, meaning that A is suffering for the sins of B, meaning that somehow you know, A suffering is going to be for B. It's not saying that. It's saying that A is suffering from the sinfulness of B, meaning that, that because B, because the, the, the rest of the people are so wicked and evil, they take out their evil and their wickedness on the poor suffering servant, and they, mm. they, they subject him to suffering because it's, it's an expression of their wickedness and their evil. So the, the, the whole idea that this is a passage uh, that expresses uh, a sacrifice that atones for sin is is really built upon a mistranslation of the text. And uh, I don't know, do we have more time tonight, or should we uh, begin wrapping it we, up? We have to. I am I am desperately wanting to highlight just a couple of things in nine. Okay. And can can we can we do that quickly? Let's rock and roll. Well, it's interesting because you said in the previous verse, verse eight. For the transgression of my people, I've got he, but you say it's they. Now, in verse 9, I've got, and they made his grave with the wicked. Now, I've got a little asterisk, little star next to they. If I go down to the little tiny itsy-bitsy writing, it says, literally, he. Isn't that funny? <laughs> that they is literally he. And so, what it actually is, and this is, the, this is the New King James admitting this, and there's a few admissions here that I just want to uh, highlight uh, and it should say, and he made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And of course, the Christian would read that and they'd say, well, of course, because, you know, Jesus died on the cross between two other criminals, two thieves, one on either side were crucified with him. And he was entombed in a rich man's tomb, Joseph of, of Arimathea. Uh, he, he was uh, in a tomb that had never been, and Joseph was a, was a rich man. But it it confuses it. It gets it switched around, doesn't it, Michael? Because it says, and they made his grave with the wicked, which would indicate that Joseph of Arimathea was wicked because, after all, Jesus ended up in his grave, but with the rich at his death, which would, I guess, suggest that the two thieves were really good at what they did and made a lot of money out of it before they were crucified. Would that be right? That's one problem, you could say. And the other problem, again, textually, is that the Hebrew is not speaking about a person's death, but it's speaking about deaths in the plural. You uh, would be amazed if I were to tell you that the New King James Study Bible admits that. Huh. Okay. Would you like to know what it says? Yeah, it well, says, how, do they, how do they parse it? I'm wondering how they parse it then. It's an amazing thing. All, all it says in the study notes, now it says death, singular, in the reading. There is no little star that takes me to the little itsy-bitsy writing. Uh, They don't want to make it that obvious. What they've done is they've put a little note down at the bottom of the page in the study notes, and it says the Hebrew term death is in the plural. I kid you not, that is what it says. Now, the, the way they get around it is it says as a focus on the deep significance of Christ's death. Now, if that is actually true, why not put it in the text is my question. If someone says to me, Isaiah 53 is about Jesus, 
then I'll say, how you're sure about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely sure. You should read it because it's clearly about Jesus. My first verse that I want to go to with them, with this New King James Study Bible that, that admits these uh, uh, mistranslations, this trickery with the text, is verse 9. I think that that is compelling to show in a very short way that this passage is not about Jesus. And I also think that, that you highlighting verse 15 of, of chapter 52 is also very, very compelling that it is not about Jesus. And yet this is uh, what they understand it to be. And, as it says, and I mentioned before in uh, verse 12, the last verse of chapter 53, it mentions he was numbered with transgressors. And uh, Luke 22, as I mentioned before, does uh, Jesus quotes that. He says, I have to fulfill that. And uh, again, one would assume that he's talking about the fact that he is crucified between the two thieves, crucified either side. Um, but when you, go, when you go down to verse 9, it does say that they made his grave with the wicked, uh, Joseph of Arimathea being wicked, but at the rich with his deaths, plural. So there is the there is confusion. Uh, do you reckon we've presented the Christian perspective uh, and, and analyzed that fairly well? Well, I think that, you know, we, we certainly did uh, summarize and, and uh, I think explain the Christological reading of this chapter. I think what we tried to do was to raise two questions. Number one, you know, is it really so clear that Isaiah here is speaking about the person of the Messiah? Um, you know, is it really compelling textual evidence that points us in that direction? And number two, um, is there anything about this chapter in Isaiah that clearly identifies Jesus? And I think that what we try to do is to show that th there are numerous aspects to this chapter that clash, that really don't line up with Jesus, and it's very difficult to uh, insert him into this passage. I'll just say mm. one more thing, if I might. Please. Um, and I think we mentioned this at a very first uh, broadcast that we did with the rules of engagement, mm. that, you know, we mentioned that this is the nuclear bomb in the missionary arsenal. This is mm. their their best punch, if you will. And, you know, we should just point out that, you know, for the Jews that were living at the time of Jesus, he was insisting that people accept him as the Messiah. And he had very little patience for anyone that would question that. But he was doing this. He was making this claim and insisting people accept him years before Isaiah 53 even became relevant. Meaning that mm -hmm. it's a passage that only kicks in after his death. And yet, it's a bit of a red herring because his claim was not that he should be accepted as the Messiah after he dies. He was making the claim that he was the Messiah years before his crucifixion. And so, in many ways, you know, the, the claim of Jesus being the Messiah really predates. It, it, it goes back before this chapter in Isaiah even becomes relevant. And then the question would be, well, why would anyone during the ministry of Jesus, why should they have accepted his claim to be hmm. the Messiah? The, the Christian is missing their major piece of evidence. Um, what, what we try to do tonight was to show this is not very strong evidence, meaning that if you have a passage which is not clearly speaking about the Messiah and doesn't clearly point to Jesus, then it really fails to serve as evidence anymore. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And thank you, my friend, for coming back onto Truth To You. Uh, I think we have done exactly that. And next week, of course, the question is raised, well, then if it's not about Jesus, what is the Jewish perspective of, of Isaiah 53? And that is exactly what 
we aim to cover next week. Is that right? We will answer the Unix question. We will answer you, and we will. T- <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's what we will do. We're going to be doing that next week, and we're going to. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So Isaiah 53, not finished with it yet, because we do want to put it in its context and talk about what it actually is talking about to the best, uh, the, the, the best of our ability. So thank you again, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca is the website. And uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with you again next week. Until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Thank you.